The medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double-blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. East Asian medicine evolves not from the examination of dead structures, but rather from living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Geological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of East Asian medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese and other East Asian medicines. Listen into these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you 
my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Today, we're going to be talking about acupuncture and research. I have Lisa Taylor Swanson with me. Lisa actually was on Everyday Acupuncture Podcast, show number 38. We got into some really cool stuff that she's doing with research in that one. So that is a show worth listening to if research is your thing. And and actually, if research is not your thing, it's worth listening to as well. Lisa is a longtime practitioner. She had the fantastic Abundant Health Clinic in Tacoma, Washington for a long time. She's recently moved to Utah, where she's currently an assistant professor at the College of Nursing at the U of U, University of Utah. And she has a PhD in clinical research. Oh, and one other thing that she's doing is she's got three different studies going that have to do with acupuncture and cancer. We'll get into that stuff, too. Today, the focus is research, and we're going to come at this from a number of different angles up to and including those of you that are considering a DAOM or might be in a doctorate program and you need to know something about research. Listen up, folks. I got Lisa here. Lisa, welcome to Geological. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm so psyched to be talking to you about this because you're such a research geek. (laughs) Truly. Died in the wool. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It actually makes me happy. I know it does. And that's why I love our conversations around it, because I'm basically a guy that's like research. eh, It doesn't turn my crank. And so it's it's fun for me to go talk to someone who knows something and more than that is lit up about something that I either don't know much about or even in some ways I don't care about because I get to learn something new. I want to start today talking about research, you know, a lot of us in the acupuncture world, I don't know if we really use research so much in our clinical work so much as we use it as a way of advertising and marketing. You know, when there's some research that comes out and they go, oh, look, acupuncture is better than opioids for pain. You know, we use it as an advertisement. We Facebook it, we Instagram it, Twitter it. We try to say to the world, look, we are real. We have this, you know, sort of evidence-based thing that says our medicine really works. But in terms of actually using it in our clinic, I'm not sure that many of us do that. And so I'd like to begin today by hearing from you, how can research actually be helpful to us in the clinical work that we actually do with patients? Why should we bother? What's the draw? How can we engage it? No, I think those are really essential questions. And with East Asian medicine, traditionally Asian medicine, we are really at the cutting edge of antiquity in terms of nowadays cutting. You just said cutting edge of antiquity. 
of antiquity. Yeah. And I think it comes full circle that way. Yeah. Because where we and this tradition have been doing for millennia, what is now really fancy and sexy, that of personalized medicine or individualized medicine, that biomedicine is trying to figure out, and it's a noble cause, you know, can we figure out which medication to start a patient with, for example? Can we tailor, can we individualize our approach to treating, you know, cardiovascular disease or whatever? And that's great. But of course, that's what we've all done for this tradition for millennia and those of us in our careers for 10, 20, 30 years. So each patient, of course, we diagnose, we treat individually. We look at their differential diagnosis that often changes over time. We rarely give the same treatment twice, even to the same patients. So of course, when we look at most of research that's randomized controlled trials of a set protocol, everybody gets the same thing. I roll my eyes and probably all of our listeners do too, because that's... Right. We're like, why bother? This, this has really nothing to do with how we practice medicine. Yeah, it's so true. So there's a really great group of researchers working with Lisa Conboy in Boston. She's at NISA, the New England, New England School of Acupuncture. She's also an instructor at Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Convoy's team, it's like my dream team. It's really fun working with her because it's an interdisciplinary team, mainly acupuncture researchers like myself, but also Lisa is a sociologist. And the most recent project looked at Gulf War illness. So these are folks from the first Gulf War who are really sick. And sadly, they're getting worse over the, what is it, 20 years plus since they served our country. And they're diagnosed with Gulf War illness by a cluster of symptoms. There's usually pain, sleep, cognitive, and emotional issues. So these folks, again, sadly, they're getting worse over time. Biomedicine has not successfully treated them. We had a trial of acupuncture. Some of the people had acupuncture once a week. Some of the people had acupuncture twice a week. The main outcome measure was pain. There were two assessments of that. And clinically and statistically, there was significant improvement over time in the group that had acupuncture twice a week. So this is relevant to clinicians because we can look at this trial and it, it was individualized acupuncture. They were provided care as we clinicians would want them to be provided. It was according to their presentation and how that changed over time. And also we can learn in terms of dosing. Because I know for myself, I've treated patients just over 16 years. And over time, I had my own clinical experience to draw from. But as a newbie, I was like, I don't know, should these people come in every week, twice a week, every other week? So being able to look at dose um, from this research study, I think could be very helpful for clinicians, as well as being able to understand in a study, we looked at more than just one symptom. It wasn't only pain. Again, pain, sleep, mood, cognitive concerns, and thinking about the whole person and how they change over time. That's what we do every day with every patient. But this is a study that's, again, I think really relevant to clinicians. You know, this dosing thing really catches my attention because it seems like it's such it's such a big question, mm -hmm. right? To do it once a week, you know, in China, people might get treated every day for like two weeks, right? That's very common. Sometimes you have people here in the States and, and part of their marketing spiel is you have to have acupuncture once a month or don't bother coming in because, <laughs> you know, it's dose dependent. And if you're not going to do it, then get out of here. Mm -hmm. And then there's other people you do a few treatments and, you know, you never hear from them again. And it's not because they weren't helped, but it's because their life was completely changed. They no longer need us. 
Mm-hmm. And there's the issue of insurance. And there's the issue of insurance. Absolutely. Yeah. And paying out of pocket, depending upon the state that you're in. Washington State, I was always trying to dole out visits because we had 12 a year for most plans. Here in Utah, insurance doesn't cover, much like where you're at in St. Louis. So we're trying to navigate people's flexible spending accounts and out-of-pocket costs. And that's, I think, one of the strongest drivers of dose in the United States. It's quite unfortunate. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're involved in right now. You've got a couple of projects going on. So it's been such a riot. So I landed in Utah in July last year. So I've been here a whopping seven months, almost totally. And honestly, when I did my PhD at the University of Washington, I had to be judicious. I needed to learn a lot, particularly, of course, about how to conduct studies. And I also felt like I needed to kind of have a foot in East Asian medicine world and a foot in biomedicine world. So long story short, my work there really focused on midlife women's health and the menopausal transition and not so much on East Asian medicine. So now here I get to do both. And I tell you, Michael, my phone is ringing off the hook. Well, nowadays it's email all the time, but there is so much interest. I have to really be judicious about what I do and what I don't do. Where's this interest coming from? Everywhere. I had a guy come, gentleman, who uh, was interviewing for the School of Dentistry coming from Boston, thinking of relocating to Utah. He wants to study TMJ and he wants to study acupuncture as the intervention. He's got his grant application ready to roll as soon as he lands here this summer. And he was here on a job talk and job interview and wanted to meet with me because he needs an acupuncture research colleague. I'm collaborating with folks in the Huntsman Cancer Institute. We've got two studies that we're just getting IRB review and whatnot. We'll launch soon. I'm collaborating with folks in social work and psychology. There's a real interest, genuine interest and respect for for acupuncture research. Now, notice, notice I'm saying acupuncture. Sadly, there's really not any traction around the whole umbrella of traditional East Asian medicine. So, of course, how you and I, Michael, treat patients, we provide acupuncture, Chinese herbal medicine, trina, cupping, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. We're not there yet. Acupuncture is the sexy one right now. Well, it is. And, you know, really, when you think about it, it's the first acupuncture sort of what gave at least Western culture, you know, the the foot in the door. Mm -hmm. It was acupuncture, right? Not Chinese herbs. Right. So I, I could see it taking a while before that comes along, especially given the pharmaceutical companies and such. Right. You know, acupuncture is such a fantastic modality, and so much can happen by just encouraging a person's own chi. Right. So it's wonderful to hear. So I'm curious, these studies that you're doing, are you getting to do them like we do Chinese medicine, or or are you having to do these more protocol-based things? What's What's it looking like? Well, happily, it's looking like what doesn't make me sick, which is (laughs) protocols. (laughs) I I just won't do that. I mean, if if I had to, maybe I would, but I don't think so. I think I would pass up the funding, to be honest, which is a very serious thing to say, especially since I'm on the tenure track and it's a bit of a treadmill to procure funding. But I just morally cannot conduct research that does not make sense to me clinically. So happily, one project is for women with breast cancer who have taken paclitaxel. It's a chemotherapeutic agent known for inducing uh, peripheral neuropathy. Mm -hmm. So the term is CIPN, 
chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. And we're providing acupuncture. Well, it's a small pilot study. We'll randomize women into either yes acupuncture, no acupuncture. And acupuncture will be delivered according to how the clinician sees fit. Um, happily, I've got a terrific uh, colleague, Dr. Annie Budafoki, who I'm collaborating with on this study. And we're co-PIs with another PI, primary investigator, Kelsey Jester Switlick, and she's a neurologist. We're also going to conduct functional MRI at the beginning of the study on all the participants and at the end. And basically, we're hoping to weave together two literatures. There's one literature on functional MRI regarding people with CIPN and how there's changes in the brain uh, once they've developed CIPN, specifically in physical and emotional aspects of pain processing. And then also we've got actually quite a bit of research on uh, using functional MRI regarding acupuncture. But to date, there's nothing that's looked at. People with CIPN receiving acupuncture can we document basically these so-called mechanisms of action that are neurologic. Um, so we'll look at different areas of, of the brain and compare the group that had acupuncture, the group that didn't have acupuncture. One, how are their symptoms? Hopefully improved, of course. And then two, is their brain different? And that's a pretty fascinating question, really. You know, all of a sudden, I'm getting kind of geeky and interested in research. That lights me up, too. I'm <laughs> yeah. particularly struck by your, you're not just looking at does it help and how does it help. You're looking at what else might be going on in here. And I mean, back when I was in school, I think they were just beginning to do some of these fMRIs. Mm -hmm. And we were like, oh, yeah, look at that. You know, you do Guangming, gallbladder 37, and it lights up the visual cortex. How about that? Isn't that interesting, right? right? And, and we thought so that cool. was cool, and it is cool. You're looking at taking this in and, and going at a much deeper level with this to see what might be going on here. Right. Well, and I think... This is where I really enjoy collaborating again with Dr. Conboy. We're working with Rosa Schneier, other colleagues as well at NISA. What we want to do individually and collectively is take this kind of work. One, there's for sure the aha, wow, geek factor. Look at what's happening in the brain. But then again, to your first question in this podcast, Michael, okay, so what does that mean to acupuncturists or traditionally stage medicine providers? Well, what if we can take the, the brain information, basically, and go back to scalp acupuncture? Could we modify our interventions? Maybe we use one area of scalp acupuncture versus another. There's, I think, a way we can take what we learn biomedically, take it back to the medicine, and digest it. Because, of course, this is a tradition that's alive, it's emergent, and it's intelligent, the one example I often give to, to patients or when I'm giving talks is that in France, my understanding is acupuncture and East Asian medicine has been there long enough. We now have the Nogier, you know, ear system of acupuncture. So again, this alive, dynamic, emergent tradition transplanted to France, there's this new, you know, rubric to follow in providing acupuncture with ear acupuncture. So maybe in, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, we'll have some new... I hate to use protocols because, again, that makes us all want to probably vomit. Well, you know, I like the word that you use, interventions. We have new interventions. We have new ideas. We have other ways of thinking about it. Absolutely. And they'll always be tailored because that, of course, I think is the, the power and the strength of this medicine is that it's 
absolutely tailored to each person each time we see them. And each time, you know, the herbal formula changes, it really, there's nothing like it. It's kind of profound. Well, and as you mentioned, conventional medicine is starting to come around to this incredible idea of personalized medicine. It's like, oh, cool. There's this new thing, personalized medicine. We're like, yeah. (laughs) Right. We're sleeping. And your point is? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I have to say, it's sort of an aside, but I I think a lot about why research or does it matter? And if so, how to clinicians of East Asian medicine and Honestly, I had some really good advice from one of my dear, dear mentors when I was 20, whatever, after I'd finished my bachelor's degree and I was trying to figure out what to do. One half of me wanted to go do a PhD then because I've always been a research geek. And one half of me wanted to be a clinician. Honestly, I was planning on going to Western medical school. And long story short, because of dynamic systems theory, I realized that's how East Asian medicine works, looking at the whole person. And I had to go study East Asian medicine at Siam, even though I'm (laughs) needle phobic. But my mentor said to me, you know, Lisa, it's not all that different. When you're seeing a patient, you're doing research. It's just an N of one. You're figuring out what is happening, what's not working, what's working with that person. So you're doing research in the clinic every day. It's just a different design. Yep. It's an N of one, Mm -hmm. which often from the point of view of conventional medicine and conventional research, N of one studies are considered, well, that's anecdotal. It's not a big enough sample. Mm -hmm. And I can get that from a research point of view, but from the perspective of a clinician and a patient that is dealing with something that no one knows what else is going on, N of one is all you got. Well, and I think clinical expertise is stacking up those N of ones over Mm. time mentally. If, you know, clinicians who are checked in and care and and really engaged and not overworked and not burned out, then you stack up those N of ones and then you see a pattern and notice, oh, yeah, you know, when I see this general presentation, I'm going to start with Suwutong because I think, you know, it's blood deficiency underlying, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So you can have that. It's like a, a shortcut that you can have a quicker analysis because you've seen it before, more or less. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. 
Well, we're talking about brains and how they work. And it seems to me that over time of, of tallying up, in a sense, all these N of 1 studies, all this clinical observation that we do, that we're involved with, something gets wired into our brain. Mm-hmm. Something gets wired into the synapses. Patterns arise. And we don't even have to think about it. It's just... Oh, yeah. It's, it you know, at a certain point, I mean, all of our learning starts as software, so to speak, right? You go to school, you memorize things, you learn theories, blah, 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 blah. But at a certain point, that stuff starts to get hardwired. And that's when stuff really starts to happen. And that's when I think you get really good as a clinician. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You see better outcomes. You have, and just clinical confidence, being able to sit with a patient and say, Yes, I understand this. And let me tell you, you know, what my thoughts are. There's so many patients I've seen with, uh, for example, unexplained infertility women. They come in, they're like crying. It's so frustrating because, of course, we're used to being able to have everything to the minutia defined biomedically. So, of course, it's even more distressing if someone has this unexplained, we don't know what's going on, but for some reason you can't conceive. And then for me to be able to say, I understand within East Asian medicine, X, Y, Z is going on. There's liver T constraint, underlying gene deficiency, you know, whatever the differential diagnosis might be. And when I can say to that woman, I see you and you make sense to me and we can treat this over time. Here's what you can do. Here's what I can do. It's a sense of the patient will often say to me, wow, well, that still is weird as anything, yin, yang, chi, blood, what have you. It's still foreign. It's still strange. But for them to hear from a clinician, they're understood and it, they make sense to them. And they're, it's not in the patient's mind. And of course, so much of that is sexism and how medicine is still delivered. It's really comforting. And I think there are better outcomes. And that just comes, like we were talking about, with stacking up those N of ones and making sense of clinical presentations. You know, I was just thinking, too, as we're having this conversation, so often people will come in and they'll say, you know, I've I've been through the conventional medicine route. They say there's nothing wrong with me. (laughs) Right. But I'm exhausted or whatever. Yeah. But of course, the truth is they don't know what's wrong. Right. It's not that there's nothing wrong. It's that they don't know what's wrong. And often when I'm really truthful with myself, especially when I'm first seeing somebody, I don't know either. Totally. Right. I don't know either. And I'll even say that to people. It's like, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't know either, but that's not the stopping point. This is our starting point. Absolutely. And I've got a few ideas of what it could be, but we have to get a little ways down the road to see which of these ideas it might actually be. We've got ways of looking at this with Chinese medicine, and we've treated people with this, you know, for hundreds of years. So I may not know at the moment but I got something that'll help us know over time. Well, it's like Michael in the <laughs> the shopping malls in the 1980s. Well, that's the last time I went in the mall. They had those pictures that were like dots. And if you looked at them long enough, then you could see whatever the, the pattern was. Remember oh, those? yeah. Yeah, they used to have them in the Sunday paper too. Yeah, 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 exactly. They did. And that's just what you were saying earlier with pattern recognition. It takes time. You first see a patient in all of their complexity, sometimes chaos. And it takes a while to get to know them and to figure out what's most salient, that starting point. I absolutely agree with you. But it can be done. It happens. It just takes 
time and relationship. I think that's the other thing that never gets studied, rarely gets studied regarding our medicine. It's studied somewhat in biomedicine, that patient-provider relationship. That really matters. I found that to be true in my work. And, you know, it's funny because at the same time, acupuncture has this uh, sort of reputation for being, oh, you know, you could go and get a couple of treatments and you'll never smoke again in your life. Or you go and you get a few treatments, you never have (laughs) knee pain again. I mean, there are those stories. Yeah. These things sometimes happen. But I think more often the medicine is something, especially for more difficult issues, it, it, it happens over a period of time. And the relationship that we have with our patients is absolutely intertwined with everything else that we do. So here's a cool research geekery fact, factoid. So in patients and providers, there's a term uh, of entrainment. And when they're in tune with one another, basically, there's this entrainment, including heart rate variability. That's associated with better patient outcomes. Really? Isn't that wild? That is... um... Astonishing, actually. And it makes sense to me because I remember my very first little baby case study. I was a little clinician in Tacoma all by myself, not having had formal training. And I just did a case study because I had to do research. And I um, had a consent from the patient and I got a consent form from my mentor. So it was, you know, as much as I could do proper research, even though it wasn't reviewed by an institutional review board. And I, I asked her to keep a journal and I kept a journal. And then I compared our journal notes. And I found that as she and I got to know each other better, and as she felt more comfortable in that clinical setting, One, she revealed very highly clinically relevant information that she only felt comfortable revealing over time. And she had a much better, there was a a pretty dramatic shift in her pain, sleep, mood, whatever the primary condition was, I don't even remember now, improved greatly once I understood her better, which makes sense. But it, it was a way of documenting qualitatively my experience and her experience. And over time, as as she trusted me. She could, again, talk about things that were relevant clinically, and then I could modify my plan and make it even more accurate, basically, in my differential diagnosis. I think that was kind of a beautiful study. Yeah. Well, and I didn't publish it. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, you could do it again at some point. Yeah, I've thought about it, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're sitting in the catbird seat there. What else are you working on right now? So another project is looking at, it's also at Huntsman Cancer Institute. It's a pilot, very, very small pilot, unfunded. We're looking at acupuncture and acupuncture plus mindfulness. So once we're up and running with the trial, basically the clinician will push play after the needles are in and the patients will be randomized either to hear music, everybody the same music in that arm, or they'll hear 15 minutes of mindfulness. And it's working with Dr. Eric Garland and his uh, pretty long-standing work regarding mindfulness as an intervention. And we're curious to see who has better outcomes. We're not going to restrict to any particular primary concern. Most likely it'll be pain of some kind. Again, it's just preliminary data that we'll use hopefully to uh, provide some rationale for a grant application later. But for me, the fun thing is thinking about when patients are laying there for however long, 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes with needles in place, what happens then? So for sure, we can assume as East Asian medicine providers 
chi is being redirected in some way with the needles. The patient sometimes, of course, completely falls asleep. Sometimes they don't fall asleep. And actually, Michael, it's one of your classmates, Barb, she talked about Aculand. So patients drift off to Aculand and it's very restorative. But one thing that got me thinking, actually, and this is another way that research comes back to clinical work and vice versa. In clinic, for me, is where I get my research ideas. I have questions, and I want to understand them. So I'd have patients that would say, after I'd check the needles out, wow, you know, I was laying there, and I felt like I was moving or floating, but I knew that I wasn't. Or other patients would say, yeah, I was laying there, and I had these like colorful dreams, but I wasn't asleep. And I thought, huh, I wonder if some people that are kinesthetic learners Maybe they feel like they're moving, and maybe some people that are very visual learners, they see things. But I also thought, does acupuncture help people be in their bodies? Because, of course, in modern life, we tend to run around and we're in our heads thinking, 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 hardly even noticing that we're, you know, working so hard, our back hurts, or sitting so long, our back hurts, you know, whatever. I think a part of the effectiveness of acupuncture is basically mindfulness. I think that it helps people be in their bodies, feel their bodies, feel chi moving around or whatever we want to call it. And that's a part of what I'm really excited to study because it hasn't been done. That sounds really cool. Of course, I often hear people say things like, I fell asleep. And I've had this sneaking suspicion. I've had it for years. I'm glad we're having this conversation. Maybe you can shed some light on this. I've had this sneaking suspicion. It's actually not sleep. I'm thinking mm -hmm. it's something else. I mean, there are times people sleep, but there's other times I'm thinking of my own experience where I'll be on a table. I am not sleeping. I'm very clearly not sleeping. My consciousness is in some sort of a state. I'm clearly not sleeping and I'm snoring. Mm -hmm. And I've had people describe all kinds of sensations. And I mean, like you were talking about, sometimes it's visual, sometimes it's kinesthetic. But they'll often say sleep. And I'm wondering, has anyone done research to see what is actually going on with people's brainwaves when they get acupuncture? Because people say they're taking an acunap, but I don't know if that's true. I, I actually don't know what's going on. Has anyone done research on this thing? You know, I don't know. I'll do a lit search and we can do the podcast and I'll tell you what I found. <laughs> if anybody, I would guess uh, Vitaly Napadao, uh, back east, I think he's in Boston. He and his group do some awesome, awesome work looking mainly at, at functional uh, MRIs and sometimes PET scans, but looking at neurologic change, you know, during acupuncture, comparing acupuncture with sham, different parts of the brain light up for some points, same parts of the brain light up for other points. Pretty interesting stuff. But that question of during acupuncture, you know, are we in alpha, beta, delta, whatever brainwave activity, it would be really fun to do that study. Yeah. And is there, and is there a pattern? Is there something, mm -hmm. is there something about acupuncture that's different than a nap, I think is my main inquiry. Right. Well, and my other inquiry with that is sometimes I saw patients who didn't ever feel that relaxed. They were hypervigilant, visit after visit after visit. They never reported that it was an uncomfortable experience, but they were just never relaxed and rested. And some of those people had improvements in whatever they, they were there for, or various symptoms or diagnoses. Other people didn't. And honestly, a part of me has always wondered, again, that's the stacking up of N of 1. Mm. 
you see worse outcomes if people don't experience whatever it is. We don't know what to call it right now, Aculand. And, and I wonder about that. Well, keep us posted. I will. <laughs> I'd like to shift a little bit. You know, the uh, doctorate programs in East Asian medicine, a lot of folks in, in doctorate programs these days, and, and often research is a piece of it. And then there's this thing called a capstone. And I'm going to publicly express my ignorance here. I don't even know what a capstone is. It's a big project. It's a, so it's a big project. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Smaller than a dissertation. Probably most of them are smaller than a master's thesis. Depends mm-hmm. on how uh, how engaged and ambitious the student is. But it's a big project. It's a big project. Okay. And so research might or might not be a piece of that? Or is it often a piece of it? How does that usually work? Absolutely. It definitely, I think, depends on the school that a student is attending. For example, in Oregon, we have OCOM with a very strong research program and an actual research department. Same thing at NISA in Boston. Uh, they've got an actual research department. So they have the infrastructure at those schools. I think in Austin as well, the acupuncture school there, um, or East Asian Medicine School. Those kinds of schools have the research infrastructure to really support actual, you know, pilot studies and whatnot. I'm sure students at Bastier are same thing. Um, but other schools, for example, here's where I fall into the, the lack of vernacular. Siam is now S-I-E-A-M. I don't know how you say that. Do you know, Michael? I don't. It's our alma mater. We got to find out. We got to find out. I know. I think it's Siam. I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce it. We'll find out. I love Siam. I do too. But um, (laughs) we're old school. (laughs) We're old school. Siam to the core. Um, Yeah. So, of course, there's not a research department there. Um, Happily, the new academic dean, Kathy Taramina, I think she'll help students who want to do research. So, long story short, depends on where you're at and whether or not you have the support and the internal. faculty to really support uh, an actual research project. Otherwise, students might do, uh, you know, a literature review or translation, especially if they're at SIOM. So the the topic can really vary or a multiple case study or a single case study, depending on what they are interested in and where they're at. So you just threw around a couple of terms, literature review, well, case studies we understand. We've, you know, it's how we learn how would a, how are literature reviews helpful? Great question. So literature reviews are the most basic. Um, it's something we all do all the time. We do Google searches, right? And so we're just trying to see whatever there is on uh, our topic of interest. And it could be we want to find the various best noodle soup restaurants in our neighborhood. Um, but in terms of research, it would be going online uh, and really surveying the literature on a particular topic. Um, what's nice nowadays is that quite a few East Asian medicine and the complementary complementary and alternative medicine, now the more sexy modern term is integrative health or integrative medicine, journals, uh, many of them are going to be indexed on PubMed. And so that means if you go to PubMed, I think it's just PubMed.com, you can run a search and you'll find journal articles uh, that are relevant to East Asian medicine. It won't only be um, JAMA and things like that, which occasionally publishes some some papers on acupuncture. So really, a, a literature review will give you a lay of the land, a survey of the scene of, 
of whatever topic you're interested in. Uh, if someone's really wanting to be diligent and be sure they found everything on a topic, they're going to need to use other search engines in addition to PubMed. Uh, CINAHL is a nursing uh, search engine. Often that will garner a few more papers. There's AltMed and a few other alternative medicine, literally, uh, search engines that you can use. The challenge is to access those, you almost always are going to have to go to the university of wherever you are in your local town and either search online. Sometimes they'll let anyone from the public use their databases for free. And that means you could get PDFs and get the articles you're looking for, which would be nice. What I had to do before I was a student at the University of Washington, I just bought a library card. It was $100 a year. For me, again, as a research geek, worth every penny, I had a ball. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to be literally systematic about it, a systematic review is a proper, rigorous review on a topic. That's very different than a literature review. For most doctorate programs, a literature review would probably cut muster. It would, because that'll give you the proper background information really to put in your paper for the background section. What's been done to date on a topic, where the gaps in the literature, this project aims to fill that gap, that's the standard vernacular. So you could put together a project that you're interested in, show what's been done, show what hasn't been done. Hey, this thing I've got goes in the thing that hasn't been done. It's my contribution. Exactly. Yeah. And then a student also could actually generate a systematic review uh, for a project. It's a big undertaking. I've been involved in two systematic reviews. One, very nice shout out to WIAMA, the Washington East Asian Medical Association. Long story short, we actually affected policy change from the systematic review that we did. So that's actually, to go to the first question you ask, why do we care about research? Yes, to educate biomedicine and our colleagues, acupuncture does something or East Asian medicine does something. But two, to enact policy change, that's pretty sexy, right? Powerful. What kind of policy got changed as a result of this? Yeah, labor and industries. So they, long story short, for almost 30 years, acupuncturists in Washington state have been working with labor and industries to try to get them to cover acupuncture as a covered benefit for injured workers. So maybe five or so years ago, it's been a long time now, um, we started in, in earnest uh, having a, additional, more in-depth conversations with the medical director and all of his team. They said, okay, what needs to happen is a review of the literature and see what it says. Let's just pick a topic, low back pain. We said, as clinician researchers, I was in my PhD program at the time with colleagues who also had research training. We said, look, sir, this this is really not going to help us or you, and most importantly, not the patients, because literature on low back pain most often will include a sham control. It's not inert. So it's basically comparing acupuncture to diluted acupuncture, which is still effective. And so you're not going to be seeing statistically significant differences between those two groups. And so then the, the typical interpretation of those data are, oh, acupuncture didn't work. It wasn't that much stronger than the diluted weakened sham control. Mm -hmm. So long story short, we reinterpreted the data. We said, let's look at these studies, look at within group findings. So those groups that had acupuncture, did they improve statistically significantly from baseline to the end of the study? And then look at sham, not as a, a control that really can be respected as such, but as a weakened acupuncture arm. So we did that. We reviewed all the literature. We made 
table after table after table, summarizing the results, presented all that in a PowerPoint. Dr. Gary Franklin, the medical director, said, wow, you guys brought your heavy hitters this time because we had acupuncture researchers who could talk shop and they changed their policy. Now they have a pilot study paying for acupuncturists to give acupuncture to patients, to injured workers with low back pain. They'll collect data from the pilot and I'm sure it'll be very favorable, we hope so, and eventually change the policy for good to cover acupuncture. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. You know, I hadn't thought about the use of research for changing policy. Uh, I just I just thought about how how can it help me in my clinic, but that particular vision, that particular scope of looking at how people think about it, what gets covered, what gets what doesn't, that sort of thing. Of, of course, research would be vital in that situation, wouldn't it? It really is because, like it or lump it, it's the language of modern science, and if we cannot speak that language, we are mute. Better if you can be a heavy hitter in that world. Right. And honestly, I think that's a very important decision for your listeners who want to geek out and do research. They really have to think hard whether to do the DAOM program somewhere or whether to do a PhD. If they really, really want to do research, I humbly suggest they consider a PhD. It's the known degree. It's the one that has street cred. Yeah. And, and and if you're going to play in that world, you got to have the street cred. You got to have that kind of a D, honestly. No question. Our DAM programs are awesome. They are amazing. They are generating clinicians and clinician researchers who are bright and engaged and well-trained. And again, my just my opinion, um, I do think the DAOM is not going to take you as far if you really want to do research. It just isn't. That makes sense. But I don't think that's what it was designed designed for anyway. And it was designed to, to make clinical practitioners, I do believe. Right. Yeah. So if, if, if you want to geek out on research, go where they get geeky with the research. You know, I have to say, thinking of another value of research, I'm really struck by my experience at the University of Washington and the University of Utah in that nowadays, 
uh, very trendy, and I think it's pretty cool, phenomenon is called interprofessional education. And so what they'll do is they'll get students from nursing, medicine, dentistry, public health, social work, nutrition, whatever they have on whichever campus, put all those students together in a room and talk about cases, talk about ethics, try to get people talking shop to one another as students in hopes that they'll play better basically as colleagues um, and then we'll eventually see better outcomes. And as I participated in interprofessional education in these two campuses, I'm struck by the fact that East Asian medicine is so marginalized, we're not even on the campus. So again, I think yet another way to get us on the campus, so to speak, where various health traditions are taught is to really have research where we can communicate how powerful, how safe, how effective this medicine is. And that will help our patients. That will help the profession. That will help with policy as well. So often we hear about people and their goal is, I want to take Chinese medicine. I want to take East Asian medicine mainstream. Mm. Often it's it's kind of a marketing stance. Um, you know, and I get it. You want to get it out there that, that people think of it as, a, as an opportunity, as a consideration, as a as a potential way of getting help. But as I hear you talking about this, get your Chinese medicine education. If you've got, if you got the, the interest in it, go get a PhD. That's really getting it. That's just not getting it into the mainstream. That's getting it into the roots that feed the mainstream. Well, and here's where it gets even more exciting. So all of our predecessors doing beautiful work, both clinically and in terms of research, have got some thought basically into the system, so to speak. So NIH's division that funds East Asian Medicine Research and CCIH, the Division of Complementary and Integrative Health, they have now um, an emphasis on whole systems science and whole systems research. That's the catchphrase that East Asian medicine, naturopathic medicine, massage therapy, many so-called alternative medicines function under. We look at the whole person and treat the whole person over time, basically. So I think being most strongly who we are as clinicians, as a medical tradition, can also influence the, the, the dominant tradition of biomedicine. And I think that whole system science is a part of what we're seeing with um, systems, oh, the Institute for Systems Biology. Systems biology is a big thing right now. Looking at big data, that's a very big thing right now. Looking at complexity, that really can be well informed by, again, East Asian medicine. So I think being who we are, not diluting the tradition, not trying to fit in or make it Western or whatever else, being the most, again, strong in the tradition that we have can also help and inform modern science as well. Let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly. We have this very holistic medicine. We know this because this is what we do. It, what I think I'm hearing you say is that there are research methodologies that are available now that go way beyond double-blind they're looking at the interaction of whole emergent systems. Exactly. And that's what I want to help. The methods are just starting to be developed, research methods. But that's, if I can do anything before I die, in addition to parent my children well and 
be a, a loving wife. Um, I want to see a way for us to use this uber geekery, you know, this powerful computing systems that we have now to look at multiple factors changing over time, looking for emergent dynamic properties in data. There's so much that we're going to be doing in the next 10 years. It's really exciting. And we're just starting, uh, just starting that. That's where it gets really fun. And that's where I think we're so lucky, Michael, to be practicing now and not even 50 years ago or 30 years ago. There's so much we can do now to look at really what we do as clinicians. Again, that N of one, looking at complex change over time. That's what we see in our patients. And also, say they come in for, this is my favorite example. I had a patient come in for low back pain. And then it turns out she has chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. She can't sleep. She's taking a boatload of medication. She hates her job, but she has to have it for the insurance. We've all seen these kind of patients, right? Mm -hmm. So long story short, after whatever it was, six months, she comes back and her sleep is better. Her mood is better. Her pain is better. She says to me, Lisa, I applied for the, my dream job. I've dreamt about this job for a decade, but I never dared to do it because I just felt so horrible. So I've quit my job I hate and I got the job I wanted and, and I'm going to move. So that is change that you can never predict. And that, I think, is also the power of East Asian medicine. So in research, later, if we can have our predefined primary outcomes, secondary outcomes, the same boring stuff we've always been doing, and somehow capture that um, emergent, intelligent, um, dynamic change that does happen with our patients, that I think is going to be a really fine and fun day in research. I'll say. I'm startled, shocked, and looking forward to it. <laughs> because my ideas of research, I mean, they're they're really old. I don't think I've oh, updated with good them. Reason. I haven't updated yeah. them since I was in college, you know, decades ago, really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to be able to sit here with you and have this conversation, uh, first of all, feel your enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. It's contagious. And to hear about how research methods have transformed over time and how you're on the cutting edge of using this is just delightful. Any books or websites or resources that, you know, people could go and uh, get some more information about these uber geeky methods, if that happens to be their cup of tea? Let's see. So there's a lovely society. It's very small. The acronym is SCTPLS. The Society for Chaos Theory in Psychology and Life Sciences. It's my favorite, favorite research conference. There are people from across disciplines, all related to health, though, uh, really using and developing these methods of looking at complex change over time. A couple of years ago, the former president of the society, David Pincus, he's in California at Chapman psychologist. He and I, actually, and Lisa Conboy, who I've mentioned several times, the three of us had this brainstorm. What if we got together people who are really good at crunching numbers in this nonlinear way, people with data sets, beautiful, ideally longitudinal, lots of data points, data sets, and content experts. And so we did that. We had a weekend, it was called Data Palooza. 
and we analyzed <laughs> data pollution. <laughs> yeah, it's not cool. That was Dave's idea. We analyzed data all weekend and presented, you know, preliminary findings at the end of that conference. And then we all went our separate ways and worked on papers. Actually, our paper just got published a couple months ago in Menopause uh, because it was regarding midlife women going through the menopausal transition and how they experience stress and fatigue and the coupling of those two symptom, symptoms and how the coupling changed over time. So we're not talking about means and standard deviations and absolute change. We're talking about how they came together and fell apart, whether there was resilience in the system and they could kind of overcome the fatigue and uh, or not. And that changed over different stages of the menopause transition. So long story short, we're going to have Datapalooza 2.0 in a couple of years. So if people are interested, they can find my info and I'll keep them in the loop about that. But that society has a journal, there's conferences, uh, usually it's national one year, international another year. That's a great opportunity. There's the Santa Fe Institute in Albuquerque. Actually, they have free, what are those called? MOOCs, Massive Online Something Courses. Um, so they can check those out. Oh, so you can just go take a course online. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, it's all free. Those. Great. Yeah, I'll make sure all this stuff gets on the show notes page. Thank you. And I'll probably think of others. I'll email you and then you can put those on the notes page. Terrific. Lisa, I'm I'm looking at our time. I can't believe it's gone by as quick as it has. But you know what? I say that on almost every conversation. Maybe I should start trying to do long form three hour talks. I don't know. <laughs> put people to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Lately, I've had people complaining about it's like, you know, these podcasts are too short. It's like you, you just get going and then it's over. And, you know, I, I, want know. More. So, I don't know. Hey, next time, Michael, let's do a podcast on the cusp catastrophe model and it's really relevant to patients and clinicians cusp catastrophe mm -hmm. model it's basically when you see dramatic worsening the healing crisis that's the term we've used for years so we can talk about another time if you want that'd be really fun oh it would be okay any closing thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with before we say goodbye uh, my closing thought would be to uh, definitely get in touch if you're interested in talking shop, interested in um, talking about the relevance of research to practice and vice versa. Um, it's obviously something I, I love to do and I welcome emails. That would be fun. Great. You're probably going to get them. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lisa. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye, Michael. Bye, listeners. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.